Hello, and welcome to Care Talk. My name is Laura Packard, and I am the Executive Director of Healthcare Voter. And I also have personal experience with the American healthcare system because I am a cancer survivor. And so I went through extensive treatments uh, and surprise medical bills, uh, fighting for my care a few years ago. And we are here to answer your medical questions and help you get the best care possible. So please call or text in your questions and our experts will answer them in future shows. Our first question for today is from Jillian, uh, who wants to know, is Medicare supplemental coverage available through the Affordable Care Act in Connecticut? And to answer that question, Diane Archer from Just Care and Social Security Works. Really good question because figuring out what your insurance options are and how to make the most of them is not very easy. And the uh, Affordable Care Act did set up these state health insurance exchanges. So it would make sense that any insurance that was available in the state would be offered through those exchanges. But of course, with healthcare, very little makes sense a lot of the time, unfortunately. So if you are not eligible for Medicare, and that's expressly the case, you can't be eligible for Medicare, then you are likely able to get your insurance through a state health insurance exchange, either in Connecticut or in whatever state you live in. But if you have Medicare, you can't actually go to uh, your state health insurance exchange for help, what you need to do is go to either your state health insurance assistance program or SHIP, which is there to provide you with free guidance with all your Medicare options, including your Medicare supplemental insurance options. So they can help you pick a Medicare supplemental insurance plan that's right for you. They won't charge you. They're um, unbiased and independent. Um, better, I think, to go to one of a ship company uh, than to go to um, an insurance broker who may have um, his or her own interests um, at heart uh, in, in helping you choose. But if you do go to an insurance broker, be sure to find out whether the insurance broker is profiting um, or not from helping you to decide which insurance plan to take. Your other option is to go to your state health insurance department for um, a choice of Medicare supplemental insurers in your state. And finally, I would say that in almost every state, there's a Blue Cross plan and an AARP, United Healthcare, Medicare supplemental insurance plan. And you could start with those if you wanted to just go directly to an insurance company to find out uh, your options through them. One other piece of advice is that um, different plans will cost different amounts at different times in your life, depending upon how they are rated, meaning how the premium is determined. So you want to find out if the premium is going to go up a lot as you get older. That's an age-rated policy. And those are usually ones to avoid because you'll get hit hard with a much higher premium as you get older. And the ones maybe to look at are the ones that are either community rated, which stay the same uh, average price as you get older. So you're not seeing steep increases um, over time or an issue age rated policy, which also doesn't have the same steep premium increases as an age rated policy. And what happens if you move? Uh, can you get a supplemental policy in the new place that you live? Excellent question, Laura. So the answer is, 
Yes. And in fact, it's actually required if you move to a new state to get a Medicare supplemental insurance policy from that state. And you are guaranteed the right to get that policy if you do move to a different state. Now, because Medicare supplemental insurance policies will cover your care anywhere in the country, just like traditional Medicare, um, it shouldn't matter initially that you moved. You probably want to switch, though, as soon as you can. And here, maybe I should just clarify one more thing, which is that some people confuse Medicare supplemental insurance, which is insurance that picks up the 20% coinsurance that traditional Medicare doesn't pay, with Medicare Advantage coverage, which is completely different. Um, and that coverage is an alternative to traditional Medicare with supplemental insurance. And that you buy from uh, health insurers offering uh, Medicare Advantage in the state. And for a list of those insurers, you can go to the Medicare website. Great. Our next question is from LV, who wants to know, does the Inflation Reduction Act lower prescription drug costs for everyone, regardless of what kind of insurance they have? Or is this specific to people on Medicare? Okay. Really important question, too. So, Unfortunately, the Inflation Reduction Act only applies to people with Medicare when it comes to prescription drug costs and coverage. And that's because everything in the Inflation Reduction Act is supposed to be related to the federal budget. And so anything having to do with prescription drug costs for working people has allegedly nothing to do with the federal budget. And so the parliamentarian in the Senate kicks those provisions out, even though I believe or we all saw that the Democrats tried to include some protections for everyone in the bill, but they didn't last. And so um, instead, um, we have a bill that's pretty strong for people with Medicare, um, and that includes um, drug price negotiation on 100 drugs through 2030, starting with 10 drugs um, in 2026. Um, and those drugs will be the drugs that the Secretary of Health and Human Services determines are the most expensive drugs as far as Medicare is concerned. And um, we don't know what those will be yet, and we don't know what their prices will be yet. Although, interestingly, the way the bill is written, um, some of the drugs uh, that have been on the market that are really expensive and have been on the market for just um, nine years or a little bit more than nine years might have, might, will have a discount of at least 25% and other drugs that have been on the market 16 years or more will have a discount of as much as 60% so, or more even. So that's really good news. And another piece of the legislation that's really great is that the pharmaceutical companies will not be able to raise their prices more than the rate of inflation. And so no more seeing these double digit price increases every year or even twice a year for some drugs, um, which is really, really important and should help people a lot. And then there's a $35 cap on monthly insulin costs, another huge thing for people with Medicare. And unfortunately, we didn't get that for working people, but we're working hard to see how we can get that into future legislation. Um, I just want to add here that the hardest 
obstacle to getting it into future legislation is the filibuster. Because with future, with any legislation that doesn't relate to the budget, we need 60 votes at least to win. And we haven't had the uh, support to that degree yet for any of these other reforms. Absolutely. So pay attention to uh, how your senators or the people running to be your senators, uh, whether they support uh, lowering the cost of prescription drugs for working people, and also whether they support amending the filibuster to do that. So those are questions to ask the people in your state if they are running for Senate. Our next question is from John, um, who says, I heard that my obligation each year would be no more than $2,000. Is that true? Right on, John. Yes, I forgot to mention that the Inflation Reduction Act also protects people with Medicare from out-of-pocket drug costs. Um, to date, um, people are paying literally thousands of dollars at uncapped, um, unlimited costs for their prescription drugs, because even once they reach the Medicare Part D catastrophic phase, they're liable for 5% of the cost of the drug. And some drugs cost easily $100,000 in a year. And so that's already $5,000 um, alone for one drug. Um, with this new legislation. Um, it will be, I believe, in 2024 that um, there's no longer that 5% copay once you reach the catastrophic cap. And then in 2025, uh, that the $2,000 out-of-pocket cap total takes effect. Great. Our next question is from Rebecca, who wants to know, is the Medicare deductible going up for 2023 next year? Yes, that's another good question. Uh, I don't have the amount that it's going to increase to yet. I think that will come out in October, but you can be sure it will increase. It always increases. The Medicare Part B premium is a function of um, Medicare spending and it uh, totals 25% of, uh, or yes, 25% of Medicare spending um, is, is divvied up among people who pay the Medicare premium. And so um, you can imagine it will be going up. I guess we should also believe and hope and expect that it will not go up as much as it has in the past, because this year, everyone with Medicare has been paying $11 a month more than they should have been, because the government mistakenly included what they projected to be the cost of coverage for the new Alzheimer's drug, Aduhelm, into people's premium. And that literally added $11 a month to everybody's Medicare premium. I'm bringing it from about $160 to $171 a month for the standard Medicare premium. Um, and then what the government ended up doing is not covering this drug. So we've been overpaying um, premiums, everybody with Medicare has um, this whole year, uh, because the government said it couldn't undo the premium in the middle of the year. And that should mean that next year, the increase will be less than it otherwise would have. Okay, that makes sense. Our next question is from Chris, who says that my income has decreased since my husband retired. Will this affect my Medicare payment? And the answer is maybe it will, Chris. Um, it all depends on what your income is now. 
because the Medicare premium, as I just mentioned, is $170.10 if your income is $91,000 a year or less. But premiums rise as your income rises. And so if your income is, for example, over $500,000, then your monthly premium can be, believe it or not, as high as $578.30 a month. So the question is, how much did your income drop? And um, is it enough to lower your Medicare Part B premium? And you can check also on the Medicare website for what the premiums are for people with different income limits. Great. And would Chris need to do anything to get the savings if their premium dropped? Do they need to file any paperwork or call somebody or do you think it's automatic? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Laura. I think you absolutely need to take your income tax return and um, contact uh, the Medicare um, agency, maybe through Social Security is the best way to go. Contact your Social Security office and let them know your income has dropped and um, you should see uh, a lower premium if it's dropped, for example, below uh, $91,000 a year. Okay. And uh, Jeff has a question. Uh, I filed for disability under compassionate allowance a year ago and still nothing. Why is it taking so long to approve? Okay, Jeff. So again, this is really um, an important question. Uh, Social Security offices had been closed for a while and they were understaffed. Um, They are gearing up again. And uh, probably, though, they are still a bit backlogged. That all said, um, it should take five months for your Social Security disability income to kick in. And you should have received Social Security benefits um, on the sixth full month after a finding that you had a disability. So um, if I were you, I would urge you to contact your Social Security office and let them know that you're still waiting after a year. Um, You will be entitled uh, to retroactive benefits to the time when you're six months, uh, the six month, six full month after you first were approved for disability. Um, so you should get that money eventually, but absolutely you should have it now. And um, you need, just need to be your own best advocate here, unfortunately. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Diane. And now oh, it's you. my pleasure to introduce our special guest, Dr. Sarah Schultz of Doctors for America, who's going to be talking about healthcare proxies and other things that we all need to get in order for ourselves. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. So tell us, what is a healthcare proxy and why do we need one? A healthcare proxy is someone who can speak for you if you are ever in the place where you are so sick as to not have the capacity to engage in healthcare decision making yourself. Um, This is very important because in many stages at the end of life, for a variety of reasons, most people find themselves in this situation. Um, And it's important that you have someone that you have spoken to and designated yourself to be the person speaking for you. So if this is this is something that everybody should have is you should figure out who is your healthcare proxy and do the forms. Uh, can you get them online? So this is a good question. Um, a healthcare proxy or a, or a surrogate decision maker um, 
oftentimes the best thing to do is to do a form called a durable power of attorney for medical decision making. Um, these forms can be found online. Oftentimes um, the social work department in the hospital can also be very helpful in helping families with this. Um, because this shows that someone has made this decision and put it in writing. If this form isn't available, what happens most of the time is that decision-making will go to what we call the next of kin. And this varies state by state, I believe. I'm practicing out of the Washington, D.C. area. Um, but we have a specific list of who we contact if we can't speak to you directly about medical decision-making. So for example, it would start with um, here, a court-appointed guardian would be the first person, um, but then most people don't have that, so it would go to, say, spouse, adult children, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so a power of attorney is especially important if you want to name someone to speak for you who may not fall into one of these roles that would be... Um, kind of asked to step in to this role early on. And is this uh, something that people should keep a paperwork at home, e easy to access? I mean, it, you can't really plan for emergencies. That is an excellent question. And that's something that we run into all the time, especially in the hospital situation. People come in in an emergency and it can take us some time to find out who a contact person is, but then who the power of attorney is and to get that paperwork. Um, so having the paperwork readily accessible and having those around you know where the paperwork is, is very helpful. Would you maybe even recommend that people make a card for their wallet or something that has their uh, medical contact uh, information, you know, the, the name and phone number of who the person should be? Absolutely. I don't think that I've seen that, but if we had that, that would be very helpful. Yeah. I'm just thinking, uh, you know, no, nobody plans to be in a car accident and to be taken to the hospital, but if you're not able to advocate for yourself, making it easy for people to figure out uh, who is advocating for you. Exactly. Cause that can oftentimes be the hardest part of, of the situation is finding that person if they've and, and what is a medical directive and should people have one so an advanced directive or a medical directive is a type of advanced care planning who all of advanced care planning aims to have people receive care that is in line with their goals and values even if they're not in a position to be able to speak for themselves so this is documentation of a conversation, uh, usually with a healthcare professional, that outlines what's most important to that person, so their values and their goals as it relates to their medical care that they receive. Um, these are really difficult conversations to have, um, and there's been a lot of work going into um, improving this process and um, making this process easier and um, more accessible to people. Um, so 
this document is really a reflection of the conversation that a person has with their healthcare provider and ideally with the person who will be their healthcare proctor. And probably you can find forms online for this as well? Um, I believe so. The forms that we see most often in the hospital have been done with a lawyer. Um, and sometimes there are difficulties with this because lawyers and healthcare professionals speak in, in different languages. Um, and oftentimes the language can be a little bit difficult to interpret because it's either very prescriptive of a certain, what, what a person may want in a very specific situation or a little bit too vague as to be helpful. An example is that one of these that we saw referred to the wishes that a person would want should they be um, brain dead However, the patient wasn't brain dead, but was in a comatose. So it was very difficult to, um, to uh, interpret this person's advanced directive. I think one of the best forms that we have people fill out um, has many different names, again, depending on what state you're in. Um, in our area, it's called a medical order for life-sustaining treatment or a physician order for life-sustaining treatment. And this goes over some of the common um, decisions that we talk to people about in, in the moment um, goals of care discussion, such as whether they would want to be resuscitated or what kind of life support they might find acceptable. And what what can happen if people haven't done any of this pre-planning, if they don't have a healthcare proxy or a living will and something happens? Absolutely. That's the biggest question. So the goal of all of these things that I've been discussing is to really ensure that someone is receiving care that they would find in line with their own goals and values. What might happen if we don't have any information about a person is that we would default to doing the most aggressive care. And this may mean that someone who um, is nearing the end of life and has decided that they want to spend the rest of their life focusing on quality of life and comfort might unfortunately find themselves in a situation where they're in an intensive care unit receiving um, very aggressive medical interventions that they may not have wanted to receive, that may um, create more discomfort than comfort and may take them out of the environment like home where they had wanted to be and put them in the hospital. So these are tough conversations, but it's far better to have them with the people you trust than to uh, leave them without guidance. Absolutely. And I think having these conversations with your loved ones and healthcare providers, we say is one of the best gifts that you can give to your family who may be in the situation of having these discussions if you are too, too sick to be involved. And oftentimes what we see is that if people have had these tough conversations, it makes it easier for the family to be at peace, um, knowing that they're acting in a way that their loved one um, would have wanted.
And how important is it to actually have the paperwork if uh, if you're in the hospital and you're not able to advocate for for yourself and someone else is there representing you and they you, know, you don't want additional treatment uh, if if they don't have the piece of paper to say that they have um, your healthcare proxy uh, are your hands tied as a doctor if there isn't the backing up paperwork? That's an excellent question. Um, it brings to mind uh, an article that I saw a couple of years ago about a patient who actually had DNR tattooed on him and whether or not that was enough to take as a, a sign if he didn't have the paperwork with him. Um, so the paperwork is very important, um, especially if there's something happening emergently because paramedics and usually ER physicians, um, if they don't have a documentation right in front of them and no healthcare proxy immediately avail available, they will proceed with all life-saving life or attempted life-saving measures. Um, usually what happens is that there's a little bit more time and say that someone does have uh, a DNR order um, and paperwork that that is what they want, do not resuscitate. Then if they have a healthcare proxy there who's able to say, I know that they were DNR, this is not what they would want. Usually um, that conversation in the moment goals of care um, is, is enough, but the paperwork is always, always helpful. The paperwork never hurts in a situation. And what happens, um, I, I don't know the answer to this, but uh, there was a case of uh, Terry Schiavo in Florida, uh, the young woman that was in a coma for years and years, and her husband wanted uh, to stop external um, support, and her parents wanted to keep her in that coma. Uh, so, so what happens if you do have paperwork supporting your uh, healthcare proxy? And what happens if you don't have paperwork and that your, your people around you disagree? I think that that is such an excellent question. And I think that kind of scenario is one of the most difficult and most distressing for everyone involved. Um, I've been doing a palliative care fellowship for this whole year and learning how to have these conversations and work within a family situation that may involve conflict is something that's incredibly difficult. Um, I think here it would go on a case-by-case -case basis. I think that, that that case illustrates just how difficult it can be. Usually in those kinds of scenarios when we have multiple conflicting pieces of evidence, a document that someone had signed, one family member saying that that document should be upheld while other family members saying that they don't think it's in line with what the family member would have wanted. Usually that's when the ethics committee in the hospital is brought in um, to further help navigate the situation. Ideally, I think the best outcome is that in which family is able to come to an agreement um, as to what the what would be in line with with the patient's wishes. Um, but I think that that's that's just an example of how tough this process can be, and 
how important it is to have a conversation and, and be open as much as we can um, before something like that happens. Absolutely. So even though these conversations are hard to have, uh, it's important to let your wishes be known to everyone around you uh, before, in case you're ever not able to express those wishes. Yeah. And, and those wishes can change and often they do. Um, so just because you have an advanced directive or have done some of these processes, it doesn't mean that um, things won't change or you can't update those wishes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for your time. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. Please keep calling and texting in your questions and we'll answer them in future episodes. Thanks. And this is Care Talk. <laughs>